Romans chapter 8, verse 14, says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. On August 31st, 1983, Korean Airlines, a Boeing 747, departed from Anchorage, Alaska on its way to Seoul, Korea. After its departure, the commercial aircraft deviated from its planned route and ultimately ended up in protected Soviet airspace. The plane was intercepted by a Russian military fighter, and about half an hour later, the aircraft was hit by at least one air-to-air missile fired by the Soviets. The Boeing crashed into the sea, killing 23 crew members and 246 passengers on board. Investigators, after this terrible, terrible tragedy, speculated that the navigational system for the flight had been incorrectly programmed and that this pilot never knew where he was when he was shot down. And boy, that happens to a lot of people who think they're going to a right place and they're taking the wrong choices and end up where they never wanted to be. In the same way, God's given us some very wonderful, powerful systems, waypoints, by which to navigate our choices in life. But if we don't employ this system or we use them incorrectly, we're liable to suffer a similar fate as this Korean pilot did. I heard about a Christian businessman who didn't depend too much time uh, on the Word of God. He didn't know it very well. And so one day he prayed. He said, Lord, I'm going to open my Bible and get a word of guidance. So he opened his Bible and he stuck his finger on the page and it landed on the word wheat. So he called his brother and he invested in wheat futures. Within a few weeks, he had made a fortune. After a while, wheat started to decline. So he decided he needed another word from the Lord. So he just threw open his Bible at random, put his finger on the page and landed on the word oil. So he sold out of his wheat stock and began to invest in oil. And once again, he really prospered. When things started going bad in the oil business, he decided to ride it out. Well, he ended up losing everything. Devastated, he went to a friend who was a Christian attorney, and he advised him about bankruptcy. Completely shocked, the man said to his lawyer, I don't believe God would guide me into this situation. So the lawyer said, well, brother, you better get a word from God because you're in big trouble. So he went back to the Bible, and he said, Lord, I've got to know what to do. So he threw open his Bible again, put his finger on the page, and it said chapter 11. (laughs) Bankrupt. And believe it or not, that's the way a lot of believers approach guidance. So I want us to look over the next few weeks. God's guidance is many-sided in its complexity. Amen. God bless you. Each part is simple, but if you don't have a complete overview about how God guides, you're going to be misled. So I want to begin the introduction to seven principles of God's guidance, and today we simply get an overview. My purpose is to prepare all of us on how God guides us so that when you're praying about big decisions in your life, you can understand all of the factors involved in determining God's will, and there's a lot of them at stake. I I think it's kind of exciting to know we have a God who actually wants to direct us, has a good plan for us wants to get there safely. God guided Israel through the wilderness, didn't he, with a cloud in day and a pillar of fire at night. And God told him, when the cloud moves, Jack, you move. Follow me. Today in the New Testament, the guidance systems have moved 
inside the believer. It's no longer external and physical. Now it's internal and spiritual. Now, a couple of cautions. There are two extremes to avoid in being guided by God. First, the extreme of human rationale, and second, the extreme of mysticism. That's kind of the whoo, that's what. Now, both of them, to an extreme, are dangerous. Human rationale is the mentality that never moves outside of the realm of what's logical. Every question is answered, every door is open, then I'll move out and believe God. And the problem with that is that you're walking only by what you see, not by faith in what God says. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, the Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. And faith is always spelled R-I-S-K, risk. Not foolish, but there's risk. And there's no such thing as faith without some element of risk. God expects a movement into that element that's not seen and sometimes where all the answers aren't just pat. And there are a lot of believers because of that who never step out. Everything is not just right. They're just too objective. But the other extreme is just as wrong. That's the extreme of mysticism. And these folks are led by some unknowable, unseeable nonsense. And it has them moving in subjective realms that ignore Scripture, wise counsel, and external circumstances. They usually say, well, I just feel led. Anytime you want an excuse to do what you want to do anyway, you just say, I feel led. You are a disaster waiting to happen. I can feel a lot of things, but they may violate God's Word. So you have to decide how you're going to be guided. I'm saying avoid the extreme of both. In Acts 26, 28, Paul's trying to lead King Agrippa to the Lord. But Agrippa was in the human rationale mode, and Paul never could lead him to Christ. Finally, Agrippa says, Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. And there are a lot of people not in the kingdom of God because of mental hang-ups. They're too logical. They can't accept the fact by faith that the unseen God made the world that is seen. It's just not rational. So they grasp onto something more irrational than that. That some protoplasm amoeba climbed out of a mud pole, became a monkey, started to walk, and here I am. My God, even in college, as a bad, non-believing, pagan boy, wild and adventurous, I used to say with my friends, what a crock. <laughs> so for a lot of you parents, it wasn't even believable. Even in school, you don't convince everybody, you silence. Kind of a good thing to remember. To silence somebody isn't to convince them. And so sometimes they don't speak up. But I remember thinking, even I, which is pretty liberal, can't go there. Can't go there. That ain't possible. And then on the other hand, there's that, y'all are so quiet. You think you came from a piece of amoeba out of a mud puddle? Come on. on the, well, I, there might be a couple of folks I've got questions about, but that's all right. <laughs> on the other hand, there's the mysticism of Naaman the leper. And he goes to Elisha the prophet to heal his leprosy. And he almost missed his healing because he thought subjectively that it was going to be by some great show of waving of his hands, playing on the organ, and touching him. And when Elijah, didn't, who didn't even come out to see him, said, go wash seven times in the Jordan River, he almost stumbled at it and missed his healing. I'll read it in 2 Corinthians 5. 
Uh, second Corinthians, Second Kings. Let's go back further. Second Kings five, verse nine through fourteen. So Naaman came with his horses, stood with his chariot, and stood outside the door of the house of Elisha. And Elisha sent a messenger out to him, say, go wash in the Jordan seven times, and your skin will come again, and you'll be clean. But Naaman got mad, and he went away angrily and said, well, I thought the dude would come out here to me, wear his little pinky Lee shoes, play on the Hammond B3 organ, call on the name of the Lord, strike his hands all over the place, and I'd recover from my leprosy. Then he rationalized, are not Abana and Fafra rivers of Damascus better than all the muddy waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do something really big, you'd have done it. How much rather when he said to you, Sparky, go wash and be clean. And then he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan just like the man of God said, and his skin came back like the flesh of a little baby, and it was clean. See, so there's two extremes, and they're both wrong. You know, God can heal you any way he wants to. I mean, you've watched it on TV, or you were raised in some group, and you saw some dramatic style, and yet when you read the New Testament with Jesus, I don't see any style. He just says, be healed. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. You know, you go to some healing seminars or healing conferences, your wife will go through menopause before they ever get you up to pray. They got to sing 430 verses of Alleluia. And some of you think that's the way God has to work. Now, He can work that way, but there's no biblical, there's no biblical pattern that says that's how you do it. They didn't have a Hammond B3 organ. They didn't have funky-looking clothes. They didn't have the choir and robes singing. They just prayed for somebody, laid hands on them and prayed for them. Some of you make this too hard. And I could, some of you are still in bed, aren't you? And I'm doing my best. Okay, here's the problem with guidance. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 10, there are many voices in the world and none of them are without significance. And I think in America today, the problem hearing from God is we got too many voices. You'd be hearing better if you turned the TV off for a while, limit your social media time, and get off the internet. I usually hear God when I'm really still and quiet, flying on an airplane, driving in a car somewhere, and it's going to take an hour or two, and I just cut everything off and just be still. It's amazing. God can talk to you. And you need discernment to hear His voice. Every voice speaking to you, excuse my grammar, ain't God. Okay, an example, John chapter 12, verse 29. The Father, the Heavenly Father, spoke from heaven. But some of the people said, that was an angel. Others said, no, it was thunder. See, it takes some discernment when God is speaking. In Isaiah chapter 58, 11, he says, the Lord will guide you continually. That's good news. He's in the guiding business. And then he says in Romans 8, our text, verse 14, the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. So let me quickly just run through a little overview on these seven principles of guidance. It's kind of like navigating a boat through a channel and you line them up with the buoys. The buoys are set there, particularly at night, with lights, and you don't navigate a channel to stay off the rocks by one light because you could be at a different angle on one light. So you want multiple lights and you line them up to assure your angle is correct and you stay in the center of the channel where it's the deepest and you're not gonna run aground. 
None of these seven principles work alone, and I'll show you in a minute. The first one is inner conviction. Inner conviction. That's the witness of the Holy Spirit inside of you. That cloud of the Old Testament has now moved inside of you. I was sitting in my office uh, uh, last year, and I just felt this impression, call Ray Bevan. And no reason. I don't, probably don't call Ray once or twice in a whole year. I called him, and he was in his car, and he pulled over to the side of the road when I called and started crying. He had gone through a horrible family disaster. I didn't know it, didn't know there was anything wrong. God knew it, and I got that little inner thing, I think I'll call somebody. Or, I don't know why I decided to take this road, and God was guiding you with that inner conviction, that little prompting inside. I've had, I've walked by, heard about an issue with somebody, and I felt the Holy Spirit said, well, I know you tithe and give above the tithe, but you could solve that problem, do it. And then I fight it for a little while, like you. And it just, then I know it's right because it's not helping me, it's helping somebody else. And I'll yield to it. Now, that doesn't happen every time, but it happens. And I'll guarantee you the Holy Spirit will prompt you inside. Call your wife and tell her you're sorry you shouted at her. I don't want to hear that voice. I know that's what you don't want to hear. But he's talking. Second one is scriptural confirmation. God guides by his word as well as the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. God will never ask you to do something that contradicts his scripture. That's a way he safely protects you for crying out loud. God's not going to give you direction that's going to contradict clear scripture. That's the railroad track we run on to stay safe. Third way God guides, prophetic confirmation, prophetic preaching or prophecy. Sometimes you, you, you don't even know you're doing it. You're speaking or teaching or you're preaching or something, and you are literally prophesying, but it's not coming out like you think it may, like, yay, yay, my son, for the Lord would say. You know that. that it, it, it doesn't always come out that way, and yet you are prophetically speaking to somebody. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Fourth way God guides is godly counsel, family, friends, parents, pastoral. Did you know God can speak to you through an unsaved person, even your boss? If God can speak to a prophet through a jackass, a donkey, Balaam, he can speak through you or your boss. And it's important to know. They may not know they're being used by God, but God can use anybody. That's what's really kind of cool. God is really pretty big. You know, He is not limited by race or culture or your background or past at all. You know, some people, they need to, they need to start a dial of prayer ministry and call themselves for their own answer because they're not going to do what God said. Number five, circumstances. God uses circumstances. You know, no money in the bank says, I got to find a job. I got to go to work. If there's a fire in the house, get out of the house. Now, you're being guided by circumstances. When the brook dried up, the prophet had to move or starve. So God will use circumstances to direct you. And if I talk to several people in here, they're in a career now that they did not plan on, but that circumstances changed everything, and it ended up being a great, a great destiny. But they didn't see it at the time. 
but choices had to be made because of circumstances. Okay? Are y'all tracking with me so far? Okay. Number six, the peace of God. The peace of God. Colossians 3, verse 15. And let the peace of God umpire or rule in your heart to which you were called in one body and be thankful. In other words, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Don't violate God's peace. When you feel the peace of God, that is one of the evidences this is a good thing. And I can have, uh, I can have peace in the midst of total chaos around me. Peace like a, like a river. And, and then I think about sometimes your wife or somebody will say, you know, I don't have peace about that. I know we were offered uh, a large sum of money for land to our left down here. The money was good, but they wanted all of our land, not the part we don't want, which would rapidly change our, our debt reduction. And I remember instantly when they said all of it, I remember instantly in my heart, uh, I didn't have peace. I said, no, we got to think of the future. We got to think of the next generation, not just the older people in here that started the thing and paid for it. We need to, I, I don't have peace about it. It wasn't right. And then with, then with counsel from, from others in wisdom, and engineers, they all said the same thing without knowing what I'd said, and it was confirmed. Not, not, not right. Don't do it. Not now. No peace about it. Don't violate that peace in your heart. That, God says, I know you don't know why I'm saying no. I, you don't have a reason yet, but I know something you don't know yet. Trust me. I don't have peace about this deal or this offer. Don't violate that. That's one of the ways God protects you. And all of us have violated it at some point. My wife said, I, I just don't feel good about that guy. She's always right. You know, men, if the wife says, I think she's hitting on you, don't say, oh, that's silly. Your wife can spot a UFO, an unidentified female object. Yeah. Woo! Number seven, provision. Provision. Where God guides, God provides. When, when God moved Elijah, he sent him down to Zarephath to a widow, and God supplied their needs for the whole year of a famine. So God doesn't direct you somewhere. He doesn't provide for you. Now, it may be scarce. It may be ravens feeding you. It may be breadcrumbs, but it will sustain you. God always guides you into provision. So if you got no way to meet the bills and God, you, you, you said God told me to take this job to go there and there's no provision, shut the door. Go back where you, you got misdirected. Start over because you just miss God. He never directs you into uh, lack and want and need. He always provides enough for you, even in bad situations. So now notice, God never guides only by one of these. He guides by all of them, but never by any one of them by itself. So what's the key to using the seven principles? It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, 6, two or three witnesses. See, that you couldn't even execute a man by only one witness. You can't bring a railing accusation against an elder without two or three witnesses. See, now, in the New Testament, it's 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1. This time will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Now, two or three. Proverbs 3, verse 6. In all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct 
your path. Not just one or two, in all thy ways. So God uses a multiplicity of two or three witnesses at a minimum in helping you make choices. You could have one of them that looks good and two more step in and say, no, that's wrong. Don't violate that. Two or three, God never just speaks to you alone, only you. It will be confirmed if you share what you feel God is saying to you by two or three people who are proven in their experience and maturity because I've told two or three people that claimed God only spoke to them. What nonsense. Here's clear scripture. With two or three witnesses, let what you are saying be confirmed. And if it's not, then it's not God. You stop it. Now, the bigger the decision, the more witnesses you want lined up, like who to marry, <laughs> what church to join, what college to attend, not, not where to eat or what tie to wear. You don't pray about that. God says, whatever makes you look better than you look, put it on. I don't. Now, a lot of error in our understanding and teaching of guidance occurs because a lot of people make too much of one principle, overemphasis on just one of them. Uh, like peace or counseling or uh, inner witness or something or what somebody told you, uh, you, you, can vi you can get off track. And you can buy books on each one of these subjects. Now, let me give you some hindrances before we close on hearing from God. Now, this ought to be really simple. Number one, you're just unsaved. You know, you simply are not saved. You don't belong to Jesus. You've never received him. You've never been born again from death unto life. In John 10, verse 3 through 5. It says, to him the shepherd openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them. And when he puts forth his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Now that's a good reassurance. Sheep know the voice of their shepherd. Don't ever say as a believer, I can't hear God. That's your inalienable right as a child of God. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. You can hear his voice. You may just not like what he's saying. I've had some of those conversations too, but I can hear from him. If I belong to him, I have the right. John 10, verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and I am known by them. I remember we used to have 115-pound uh, uh, Labrador retriever when our girls were little. And I, I took Alicia back then to uh, Smithson Valley, which was just a little school back then. And I thought, today I'm going to pick her up. And I was driving a Jeep, and I just had the sides off like a little convertible. And I put old big Bagley in the back, and I thought this will be kind of cute, take Bagley to school and let, let him jump out and greet her or whatever. So when the dismissal bell rang, you know, a thousand kids came out in a mob, like a rock concert. And, and, I, and I'm sitting in the Jeep with that big Labrador standing up, and this little squeaky voice out of this mass of humanity said, Bagley. And Bagley sat up. We've been lots of noise around us, all the kids laughing, screaming, crying, talking, shouting. And those ears went up, those muscles jerk. He jumped out of the back of that Jeep, snapped the leather strap I had him tied down to, and bolted into the crowd and went right to Alicia. I thought, you know, if a dog can hear its master's voice, a believer ought to be able to hear Jesus' voice, right? If it's good for a dog, I ought to be able to do it. 
So a lot of lost people want answers to their problems with marriage or finances or they need their lives straightened out, but they don't want to give their life to Jesus. They don't want to get saved. And God has no obligation to speak to you if you're not His. Now, He can. Sometimes He will. But He's not under obligation for you to hear Him. So give your life to Jesus. He loves you. He died for you. And He wants you to have a good life. Number two, not being Spirit-filled. In John 16, verse 13 through 15, however, when He, the Spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, has come, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of His own authority, but what He hears from the Father, He will speak, and He'll tell you of these things to come. In John 7, verse 39, but this He spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in Him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. The Holy Spirit was not sent until after Jesus was glorified. Become friends with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit now, since Jesus is in heaven, at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you, is called our parklete, the one called alongside to help. He's our helper. He's our comforter. The Holy Spirit is the executor of the last will and testimony of Jesus. In your Bible, you have the Old Testament and you have the New Testament. And that New Testament is Jesus' last will and testimony. And so, who is the executor who distributes the benefits and rights of a last will? The executor of an estate, of a will. And the Holy Spirit is the one who parcels out all the benefits that Jesus won as us to us who are heirs of His salvation. And so, become friends with Him. He's the one God sent to bring every benefit to you. And you can receive, well, the moment you're saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside of a believer. But there's also a lot more to that power that can come upon a believer. And we are told in Scripture it is the anointing that breaks the yoke. And sometimes great anointing could come on you in praying for people. I've seen people delivered. I've seen people healed. Uh, or you've just had incredible power over the word you brought, which affects the lives of people. So there's different degrees of his moving and ebbing in our lives. So I don't ever teach or preach that I don't say, Holy Spirit, come and fill me. Come and fill me. Anoint me with fresh oil. Not last year oil. Give me fresh oil. Give me a fresh anointing. He's my partner. He's my comforter. He's my friend. Talk to the Holy Spirit. Jesus doesn't get jealous. God the Father doesn't get jealous. They're all in agreement. That's the Trinity. And He's the one been sent to help me. So I better get acquainted and make friends with the Holy Spirit. He's not a spook. He's not a ghost. That's King James writing that. He's a spirit. A pneumos, like a pneumatic tire has air in it or pneumonia, respiratory. He's the Holy Spirit, pneumos. So there's a, there's a little extra impartation in our guidance system when He has control of me, the Holy Spirit. Then there's pride. That'll hurt you from being guided by God. Psalms 25, verse 9. The meek will He guide in judgment, and the meek will He teach His way. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is humility. Meekness indicates teachability, flexibility, and submission. A meek person in the Greek language is one who has committed his life to the keeping of another. So it says Jesus was meek and lowly of heart. He wasn't weak. 
Moses was the meekest man in the earth. He wasn't weak. He knocked down an Egyptian, buried him in the sand. He wanted to knock out a whole nation of people when he got really mad. And if God hadn't stopped him, we wouldn't have a Hebrew on the earth. Moses wasn't weak at all. Moses would cut you so low you have to high jump to get on the curb. Moses, Moses had an anger problem. It really, it really hurt him many times. So I want you to see that meekness is not being a weak plastic throw rug at all. So they were soft, they were teachable, humble, and pliable. Proud people are stiff. We call them stiff-necked. And they won't ever admit they're wrong. And in that pride, there's a cutting off of God's guidance. It's the meek that God leads. Humble yourself. God will exalt you. How cool is that? If you don't humble yourself, God will de-exalt you. And you don't want to do, you don't want God to do your job. So the Bible says for me to humble myself. Don't, somebody else doesn't do it. God says, you do it. Humble yourself, I'll exalt you. You exalt yourself, I'll humble you. Uh, I don't want him doing my job, right? Number four, self-deception will keep you from being guided. John 7, 17. If any man will do his will, he will know of that doctrine, whether it's of God or whether I speak of myself. When you approach the Word of God for guidance, you got to be prepared to do what God shows you to do. Clear Scripture. You know, too many come before the Lord for guidance with their mind already made up. I'm not going to do it unless it conforms with what I want to do. James 1, verse 22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own self, which explains why so many Christians never change. They walk away from the mirror of God's word, the very thing designed for their betterment. Now, I'll bet most of you got up this morning and you looked in the mirror in the bathroom and you didn't like what you saw. So you took a shower, you put on makeup, you combed your hair, you did something about it. Well, sometimes Henry does, but not always, Rhonda says over here. You don't want to walk away from that mirror unchanged, and that's what a lot of people do when the Word of God confronts them. They just walk away unchanged. So I want to equip people to hear God and make adjustments for themselves. Number five, dishonesty. Lack of integrity will cost you God's will. Proverbs 11, verse 3. The integrity of the upright shall guide them. But the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them. You know, a lot of decisions come down to just integrity, doing what's right, doing what's honest, paying your brother what you owe him. You don't walk off a job with no notice. That's not integrity. Then come to church, lift up your hands, and shout and praise the Lord. Somebody ought to slap you. <laughs> See, that's true. There are many things God will guide you in that are nothing more than asking you, will you do what is right? Psalms 41, 12. God says, I will uphold you in your integrity and set you in my presence forever. Doesn't mean you can't have trouble. God says, in that trouble, I will uphold you because you acted with integrity and uprightness. Do the right thing. Number six, refusing to live an examined life will stop you from hearing God. Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. That's why he isolates himself. He rages against all wise counsel. He doesn't want anybody to counsel because he knows what he's doing is wrong. So he isolates himself. See, 2 Thessalonians 2.10, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of truth that they might be saved. 
Are you a lover of truth? See, you can love truth even if it cuts you to pieces, and sometimes it will. Truth makes you free, but it makes you miserable first. The spirit of Antichrist deceives primarily by telling people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And number seven, not knowing God's Word. That one's a big one. Psalms 119, verse 105. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So God's Word is like a light, and it leads you a step at a time on your journey. I still think the number one problem in the church today is that God's people don't know His Word. And if you ever expect consistent guidance, you got to know His Word. It'll keep you from being deceived and from deception and from stuff extra-biblical. You can say, that's not in the Bible. You can't see or feel the Lord, but He's revealed Himself, His heart, how He thinks, how He feels, what He's like in the Word and in Jesus. Hosea 4, verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You've heard them say, what you don't know won't hurt you. Oh, really? Try that again, Sparky, and see how's that working for you. God says, because you have rejected knowledge, my word, my truth, I will reject you. Because you have forgotten the word of your God, the law of your God, I will forget your children. Woo, that's bad. I love my kids. I want my kids and grandkids to do well. Any of you can remember this. It's like the bond between a parent and a child. Parents can guide the child with their eye and never speak a word. Psalms 32, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. I can remember my sister and I misbehaving at somebody's house and my mother and father, military. I'd get, a, I'd get either my mother or my dad look at me. No word is said except I got a big word. If you continue this, you're going to get a bad whipping. I'm going to cut your arm off. Don't, if you even think about doing that, just by looking. And God says, I want you to be in a relationship with me so I can kind of guide you like that without having to scream at you. I want to guide you with my eye. So let's review and we're done. Avoid two extremes, too much mysticism or too much logic, not willing to move out without some risk. And then the seven principles, God will never use one alone. He will line up two or three at a minimum to help you. Now, the basic hindrances to being guided by God, not being saved, not becoming friendly with the Holy Spirit. Are you teachable, meek? Are you committed to do what He shows you to do? Are you honest? Are you a lover of truth? Do you know His Word? And even if you're a baby Christian, you're expected to obey and follow the Word you do know. And God will give you more and more and more. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit SummitSA.com.